Okay. Well, today we are in Romans chapter 8 again. And uh, we are uh, towards the end of the chapter. We uh, Last week we did verses uh, 31 and 32. And uh, so today I'd like to do the next couple of verses. I'm going to narrow it down and try not to be too ambitious and we'll still see if we can get done. <laughs> Quit grinning at me, Hal, like that. <laughs> That's right. You're only, you only missed two verses. <laughs> so, um, but uh, let's, uh, again, just to set the whole context, um, let's pick it up in verse 28. And read all the way down through the end of the chapter. It's all kind of a set, so to speak. Uh, and we're kind of just picking a couple verses out of that today to look at. But he says in verse 28, we know that all things work together for good. Uh, to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up, over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justified. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, tremendous passages that we have yet to look forward to over the next few weeks. But but as I said last week, we picked it up in verse 31 and we looked at just 31 and 32. And uh, so what do you remember are some of the things that we talked about last week?
all very quiet. Okay, you get a pass, Hal, because you weren't here last week. But some of these other people were here. What's uh, what's characteristic of this passage? Is Paul uh, what what does Paul kind of hit us with here? Kind of a series of what does he hit us with? Okay, he's yeah he's got, we've got a a series of rhetorical questions here. He's got it written down in his notes. That's good. You can look at your notes. That's all right. This is an open book test here. Okay. He gives us a series of rhetorical questions. And in a rhetorical question, the, the point or the purpose of a rhetorical question is to get you to think, right? Uh, he, he gives the question, but he doesn't necessarily really give you the answer outright. He lets you kind of think about it, but the answer is implied in the question. That's the nature of a rhetorical question. And he has a whole series of them here. Uh, uh, what shall we say to these things? If, if God is for us, who is against us? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Uh, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Etc. So he goes on and on and on with all these rhetorical questions. And, and the idea is to get us to think about these things. And the questions themselves imply the answer. And then, as Gary mentioned, these things have to do, the questions that he's asking really have to do with our security as children of God, our security as believers. Okay? Because in the earlier verses, earlier in the chapter, he, he was talking about our present suffering, the things we are suffering through now, and how do we view suffering, how we view our situation in light of our suffering. And he talked about how we're suffering and all of creation is suffering with us and all of creation is groaning together. It's waiting for the revelation of the glory of the sons of God. And we have this hope. He said we were saved in hope. We have this hope that one day we're going to see this glorious revealing of the sons of God. We're going to be part of that. And God's glory is going to be revealed in and through us. And we have this hope but but as we muddle through life, even today we're suffering through things and, and, and it makes us at times wonder, it may make us question whether or not we're still surrounded by God's love. Does God still really love us? Am I really still a child of God? These are the kind of questions that normally come to the heart and mind of a person when they suffer. And it comes to the heart and mind even of Christians. You know, you, you, just, you, you, you may live under the illusion that, that if you were really spiritual enough, when suffering hits you, it just wouldn't phase you and you could just kind of blitz on through it. But the fact is, suffering does bring up doubts in our mind, doesn't it? It makes us wonder about what is my relationship with God? Have I done something to offend God? Have I done something to make God mad at me? Have I failed God in some way? And so, and so he has, uh, this is his retaliation or maybe he has uh, abandoned me and left me to my own devices. These are the kind of questions that nag us when we encounter really great suffering. And these are the questions that Paul is answering. Okay, and so that's some of the things we were talking about last week, and and uh, and we talked about uh, 
we talked about various kinds of things that Paul addresses as he addresses this question of suffering and, and, and as he addresses the question of our security. And, and there are several things that, that we encounter that make us at times wonder about our relationship with God or whether or not we're secure in Him and secure in His love. And, and one of those things is just circumstances of life. You know, if you're in the middle of one of those tornadoes this last week and your home was ripped away from you or even uh, precious family members were taken from you. And if you're a child of God, it can make you wonder about your security with God. Uh, So circumstances do that. Uh, But other things cause us to wonder about our relationship with God. One of the big things that causes us to wonder about our relationship with God is our own sin, right? When we sin, when we fail, and when we continually, repeatedly fail God, it can make us start to question and wonder. Those are the kind of things that Paul is talking about in this passage. What else? What other kind of things that we talked about last week that come to your mind? Uh, well, let me rephrase it. I would, I would say that they are the things that get us to our destiny. <laughs> okay? So our destiny, he's already told us what our destiny is there in, in uh, verse uh, uh, 29. Verse 29, he's told us what our destiny is. And our destiny is what? To be conformed to the image of His Son. So our destiny, the thing to which we have been predestined by God, God having foreknown us, has predestined us to once again bear that perfect image of God that we were originally created to bear. Genesis chapter 2. Okay, where He created man in His image. And, and as we said, that image was effaced. It was not erased, but it was effaced. We no longer display the image of God the way it ought to be displayed. Uh, But our destiny is when the sons of God are revealed in glory, as he talks about earlier in the chapter, at that point, we are going to fully reflect the image of God. And that's something that ultimately will only happen, you know, when... Uh, at the end, when everything is settled and all the scores are settled, okay, that's when it'll happen ultimately. But God is in the process already of doing that in our lives. So these things we experience, the sufferings that we encounter and the difficulties that we encounter in life are some of the things that God's using to get us to our destiny. So I guess the way I would answer your question is they're not so much our destiny, they're the things that God uses in our life to make us like His Son. And so, as we encounter them, as difficult as they are, we can take encouragement from the fact of knowing that, uh, okay, this is, this is just the process that I have to go, to go through to end up finally fulfilling God's purpose for my life. So, it's not so much that that's what God ultimately wants in our life is suffering, but He uses suffering to get what he does ultimately want in our life, which is the likeness of Christ. Okay? Does that answer your question? Okay. Anything else? Yeah. 
for that question, is it necessary that we go through these things? For our own good? Maybe. Yeah, I just think that, that when we do these Christians, that we have, uh, you know, we know that our only hope is in choice in Christ, where it's not Christian. What, what hope do they have? Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a good. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think ultimately, and I want to get back to Herb's point here too. But I think ultimately, uh, uh, ultimately, even with unbelievers, when God allows these things to happen in their life, it's because He is wanting to draw them to himself whether they respond to that or not that's what he's wanting to do so everybody who suffers uh, I think God is you know uh, Paul tells us in, in his sermon in Acts 17 he tells us that God established the boundaries of our habitation in order that we might seek him why do I live in Oklahoma <laughs> you know with all these tornadoes and everything you know I'm asking myself this question why do I live in Oklahoma and I go okay God put me here I didn't choose to live here God put me here but he puts all of us here in order that we might seek uh, might seek him but Herb you had a, a fine point there that I think you were going to develop if you wish. <laughs> well yeah these things are absolutely necessary the Psalms are yeah. full of this language uh, before I was afflicted I went astray. Mm-hmm. When I was afflicted, I believed. God cast Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden that He might save them yep. and not leave them in eternal death. Yep. All of these things are necessary. And and it is our response to them, our hard rock granite hearts, our stony, stubborn heads are broken to pieces by the fire and the hammer of the Word of God beating on us until we cry and come to submission to His glorious death and resurrection yeah. and the cross. Yeah. And without these things, we're just as blind as any other pagan. Yeah. All who are godly in Christ Jesus will suffer, suffer mm-hmm. persecution. Mm-hmm. And we live in America, we live in this nice, nice society, and we live in this dream world or somehow we think we're going to go transported through the skies on flowery desert east. And that is a mythology from hell itself. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Yeah. Everybody who will be godly in Christ Jesus will suffer yeah. persecution. Yeah. So are these things necessary? Oh yeah. And yeah. we need to get to the place of life where we begin to embrace them. Thank you, Lord, yeah. for your goodness. Yeah. And they are necessary they're necessary because we live in a fallen world. If we didn't live in a fallen world, it wouldn't be necessary. But they are necessary because we are fallen creatures and this is the process that's necessary in order to deal with that. Well, let's go on now and pick up in verse uh, 31. So we have a lot to cover today just in these two verses. And uh, as I said, we're, we, uh, Paul is dealing with this whole issue of the security of God's children, the security of those who uh, believe in Him. And as I mentioned last week, he's, he uses in these verses several, uh, about a half a dozen, four, five, six legal terms that he uses. He talks about the accuser. He talks about the condemner. He talks about the one who condemns. He talks about 
the intercessor. So it's, there's a series of legal terms, uh, that are, uh, words that are actually used, were actually used in Greek uh, to refer to legal type situations. We're not even think of a courtroom situation. So in one sense, as we go through these verses, we can kind of picture a courtroom setting, okay? As Paul uses these legal terms to communicate the ideas that he wants to communicate. And I want, to, I want us to keep that in mind. And, and as I said, we have, we have a number of things that we experience in life that make us wonder or question or ask about our standing with God, our relationship with God, our security in Him, and that sort of thing. And I think probably the greatest one of those things is the problem of our own sin. Because okay? what the, the brutal realization we came to after we became a Christian and we, you know, we confessed faith in Christ and we came to Christ and lo and behold, it probably wasn't but a few minutes or a few hours and we realized, whoa, I still sin. I didn't plan on this, you know. I thought I was going to be perfect, you know. I thought God was going to change me and I was going to be a new person and I was never going to sin anymore. And now I find myself sinning. And it's not, you know, just not kind of random once in a while, but it's actually fairly regular. Now, there are some people, some men that I respect who think that, you know, that Christians don't necessarily need to sin every day. I guess you could say they don't need to. But I, you know, I think we do. I think every day I sin. Uh, unfortunately, I think probably more than once every day I sin. Okay. Well, after a while, after you've been a Christian a while and you find this, and then you find not only that you end up sinning every day, but some of them are kind of like habits, right? They're kind of the same sin that just keeps cropping up. Time after time after time. And for a while, you think maybe you got your hands on it. You've got it, you've got, you've got it beat down into subjection. And then it rears its ugly head again. Whatever it might be. It might be greed. It might be pride. It might be lust. It might be uh, 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 unbelief. It might be prayerlessness. It might be any number of things. But it's a, it's a recurring struggle in our life. And it keeps coming up. And now you've been a Christian for 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 or 40. We won't go any further here because I don't want to intimidate anybody. Uh, for years, okay? And those things keep cropping up. And at some point you go, how long is God going to put up with this before He gives up on me? That's the first question Paul addressed. He's going to address several issues that are a threat to our security. But I like the fact that the very first one he addresses is the problem of our sin. Not our sin as unbelievers, but our sin as believers. Our sin as Christians. And we need to remember that Paul is writing to believers in the city of Rome at a particular time in the first century. Sometime, as we talked about when we started our study of Rome, probably sometime in the, in the mid-60 A.D. era, he writes to these believers in Rome. 
and he's writing these things to them, these men and women who have, who have believed in Jesus Christ, who have committed their lives to him by faith, who have been, as he told us earlier in Romans, justified by faith, as he told us in this passage. He's writing to people who were foreknown by God, who have been predestined by him to be conformed to the image of his Son. At a certain point in time, he writes these words to them. And you'll wonder why I'm stressing this certain point in time. And you'll see when we get to the end of our study today why I think that is so important to understand what Paul is saying. But at a certain point in time, he writes to them and he says to them, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Well, his first question, another one of those rhetorical questions we run into is, who will bring a charge against these people whom God has predestined, these elect of God, these chosen of God, whom he has been predestined, whom he has predestined specifically to be made over again into his likeness as he originally intended us to be. Who will bring a charge against those people? And when I think about that question, I get <laughs> several possibilities in my mind, don't you? I think, you know, if, okay, I'll quit talking about you. I'll talk about me, okay? And you put yourself in this situation. I'm sure you fit well too, okay? But, but so here I am in the if you will, the courtroom, okay? And we'll figure out who's who in this courtroom in just a minute. But right now we know who's in the dock. It's me. I'm in the dock, okay? I'm the one that's on trial. And the question is, who will bring a charge against me? Or who will bring a charge against you in this courtroom? Well... Who might bring a charge against you? Who might bring a charge against me? Don't any of you raise your hands, but I mean... <laughs> who might bring a charge against Rick Harvey as he stands in this courtroom? Pardon? Okay. The world. Unbelievers. Now... You know, I'd like to think that as I go about my daily business and I do my work and I drive the streets of Norman and I shop in the shops in Norman, that whenever I interact with unbelievers, whenever I interact with the world, that I always do it in a very Christ-like, Christ-honoring way. It's not always quite that way, is it? It's not quite always that way. You know, there are those times when I'm driving and I get a little irritated and I cut somebody off in traffic or I, you know, or they can see me blessing them, you know, through my windshield, you know, you know, it's not always that I, you know, I, I think I, you know, I think I do fairly good, but, but there are times, you know, if we, and if I look back over the story of my life, how many people are there out there who are without Christ, who have a charge against me? Who could say, well, when I encountered Rick, he spoke this way. And I don't think that's the way Jesus would have spoken to me. 
or he treated me this way. And I don't think that's the way Jesus would have treated me. Or he drove this way, and I don't think that's the way Jesus would have driven. Well, I hope there's not a lot of people out there like that, but I'm pretty sure there's some. And when I'm standing in the dock, those people, you'd think, could bring a charge. But Paul's rhetorical question, which implies its own answer, is who can bring a charge against God's elect? Well, we'll figure out in a minute why they can't, but, but those are some that we might anticipate would bring a charge against us. But who else? Who else does Scripture tell us brings charges against us? Satan. Satan, yeah. Revelation chapter 12, he's called the accuser of the brethren. And so we have this whole demonic realm out there. And there's Satan and there's all of his henchmen. And any one of them could appear when I'm standing in the dock. And if the world itself didn't have a charge to bring against me, certainly they know a lot about me that most people in the world don't know. And they could bring a charge against me. Except the answer to Paul's rhetorical question is they can't. Well, I think so. I've got the whole demonic realm that I would think, you know, I'm standing before God and I'm being judged that i got this whole demonic realm that could bring up before Him a whole litany of my failures and my sins. And I've got the world. I've got people who I've rubbed shoulders with who in some way I've not treated right or spoken right to. And they could bring a charge against me. But, but even greater than the demons and even greater than the world is my own conscience. Right? Because in my heart of hearts, I know over and over and over again since the day I trusted Christ, I have failed Him. I've sinned against Him. I've offended His holiness. And I know that. And when I stand in the presence of God and I stand in the splendor of His holiness, will not my conscience scream out charges against me? But Paul says, who will bring a charge against God's life? So we have the demonic realm and we have the world and we have my conscience and I'm there standing in the dock and all these are arrayed against me. But the greatest charger, the one with the greatest charge against me has not yet spoken. Who is that? It's God Himself, isn't it? God is the one who brings the charges. You know, in a court of law, you have various actors, right? You have the person who's on trial, and you have these other actors. But who is the one who brings the charges in a court of law? Okay, the prosecutor... And the prosecutor can't just do it. He has to do it by what? Bringing what? Evidence. 
He has to bring evidence. He has to bring witnesses. So really, the one who brings the charges against me are the witnesses, right? Now, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, Mike here is a lawyer, so maybe he can speak to this. But if I were a lawyer, I think that the way I would do things, if I was the prosecutor and I wanted to prosecute and I wanted to really make a strong case the way I would do it, is I'd bring my witnesses and I'd line them up and I'd put the least convincing witness first and I'd get the most more telling witnesses until I got, you know, until my last witness was the one big gun that just kind of sealed it. Okay. Well, that's what we're facing here, folks. We're facing God Himself. Because David said in Psalm 51, against thee, and the only have I sinned. With all the people whom David had sinned against in his sin with Bathsheba, his sin against Bathsheba, his sin against Uriah, his sin against the nation of Israel, he realized ultimately what it really came down to is that against God and God only had he sinned. And he is the one who is bringing the charges. He is the witness who could bring the charges, right? But Paul's question is, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Because God is the one who is in the place to bring charges. If there's anybody in a place to bring charges, it's God. But what? Well, you're getting ahead of yourself. What does he say in the verse? But what? God justifies. So here I am, I'm standing in the courtroom and, and, and I'm in the dock and here this parade of witnesses against me and finally God walks in and He's here. You're wondering who's the judge. We'll get to that in just a minute. But He walks in, God the Father walks in and He's got the whole nine yards against me. And I go, I'm doomed. But no, it doesn't work out that way. Why? Because the one who isn't really in the place to bring a charge against me does not bring a charge against me, but instead, he declares me righteous. That's what it means, justifies. To declare righteous. So here comes the one who would charge me, and instead of charging me, he says, Rick, the guy there in the dock, he is, he doesn't say he's innocent, it's much better than that. I'm not just innocent. I am righteous. I've been declared righteous by the very one who I would have thought could bring a charge against me. Now, if the one, the, the really, the really only one I've really truly sinned against, according to David, if the only one I would have really truly sinned, I've really truly sinned against has rather than charged me, justified me, then who else is going to bring a charge against me? Nobody else can. Everybody else is silenced. Because the one who really has the goods on me has said, oh, no, he's justified. He's righteous. Not only is he righteous, 
I made him righteous. God justified us. He did it. And so, as I stand here in the dock and I deal with this issue of my sin, my continual failure, even in these many, many, many years since I trusted Christ, my continual failure and my continual sin, even in spite of that, the, one, the only one who could really bring a charge against me comes into the courtroom and declares me to be righteous. Now, we know how he does that because we've already studied the earlier chapters of Romans, right? It's not just a willy-nilly, you know, it doesn't matter type of thing. He's not just blowing off my sin. As he said in the earlier verses, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. So it wasn't that He just kind of, oh, it's okay, you know, doesn't, you know, doesn't bother me type thing. But He has made an atonement. Okay? Which brings us to the second part of Paul's little analogy, courtroom analogy here. If, if God the Father, in Paul's little analogy here, is the witness in this courtroom, who is the judge? Well, let me ask the question this way. In a courtroom, when push comes to shove, who is the person who has the authority to condemn? The judge, right? The judge is the one who condemns. Now, you've got a jury and they decide whether or not you're guilty, okay? And they may even recommend a sentence. But ultimately, who decrees the sentence? Who passes the condemnation? It's the guy on the bench, right? Okay. So, if, if in our little courtroom scene here that Paul has constructed for us, God is the witness. God is the one who might bring charges, but instead of bringing charges, has declared me justified. But He is the witness. And who's the judge? Pardon? God, okay, but we got God over here. Jesus. Jesus. Jesus says, the Father has given all judgment to the Son. Right? And over and over again in Scripture, we get this clear picture that, that Paul talks about it when, uh, when he preaches in, in Acts. And, and uh, the disciples talk about it. And uh, I think it's in Acts chapter 2. But over and in Revelation, we see it again and again and again that because Christ offered Himself as a sacrifice for sin, God has given all judgment over to Him. Our judge is Jesus. And the one who stands in a place to condemn us is Jesus. And God has done this in order that, He says, the world might know that He and the Father are one. So, in our little courtroom scene here in this passage, Jesus is the judge and God is the witness. And so, the first question is, who's going to bring the charge? And the answer is, there is nobody. The second question is, who will condemn me? And his answer is what? 
Okay, the rhetorical answer is... Okay. Yeah, Christ Jesus is the one who is in the place to condemn me. But what has He done? Instead of condemning me, He is what? Four things. Four things about it. Died, raised, right hand of God, interceding. Okay? So here I am. I'm brought into the courtroom. I'm shaking in my boots because I'm a sinner. And even though I'm a believer, I'm still a sinner. Okay? And so I've been brought in and I'm stood, stood here in the dock and the guy who's gonna, who could charge me, excuse me for using that term, the one who could charge me comes in and he says, no, I, he's righteous. I made him righteous. And the one who could condemn me, Jesus, who sits on the throne of judgment, is the very one who suffered and bled and died for my sins. But he not only suffered and bled and died for my sins, but he was raised. What's the significance of that? What's the significance in relationship to the issue of my sin? What is the significance of the resurrection? What did Paul tell us in Romans chapter 4? He was raised what? Because of our justification. The resurrection of Christ is the proof, the seal, the evidence that, that Christ's death on the cross satisfied the wrath of God. If I had not been justified, Christ would not have been able to raise from the dead. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, If Christ is still in the grave, we are still in our sins. So the resurrection is the evidence, it is the proof that God was satisfied with the offering of His Son. So this one who sits as my judge... And your judge in the courtroom of heaven, so to speak, is the one who suffered for your sins. He has, get that? He has taken the penalty for your sin on himself and demonstrated the efficacy of that through his resurrection. How is he going to rule? How, when, when the question of your sin comes up, how is he going to rule? He's the one who has already paid the penalty. He has already borne the punishment himself. Not somebody else. But the judge himself has borne the punishment. Is he going to punish you? If he were to punish you, it would render his suffering meaningless. So he's not going to punish you. So he died. He rose. This one who is the judge in your little courtroom scene, the one who is your judge, he died, he rose, and now he is at the right hand of the Father. Well, you can do all kinds of things with that. Okay, we could 
probably spend a couple weeks talking about Christ at the right hand of the Father. But what strikes me about this is here he is. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's in this exalted position. But what strikes me about it, within, given the context of the passage, is what do we know about the Father? Well, we know that the Father is the one who has justified me. All right? He just said that in the verse before. God's the one who has justified me. And Jesus is at his right hand. Now, you, you think these two don't agree on this? You think you don't see eye to eye on this question of my justification? Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and the Father says, Rick is justified. I have justified him. So not only is the, is the witness who, would, who could be a witness against me my justifier, but the one who would be my judge is the one who died and rose again. And not only that, the two of them are in cahoots. It's a conspiracy for me. <laughs> right? He is at the right hand of the Father. You were going to say something? In the courtroom to come, is Satan even allowed in? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, we could probably debate that. Uh, you know, just uh, off the top of my head, my answer would be no. I haven't really thought about it in those terms, but but I would say no. Yeah. And the important thing to remember about Job, and we can think about this as we go forward in some of these verses to follow. The important thing about Job is he suffered not because he was bad, but because he was good. Uh, now, it turns out that he did need some purification. <laughs> so God used it to purify him. But, yeah. 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 Well, let's, let's keep going here with our little scene here. because Oh, well, Herb's waving his hand at me. Before we construct a final answer and get our million dollars, two thoughts. Uh, one of them is Zechariah chapter 3. Sometimes read that. It is a courtroom and it plays out the scenario. And then before you buy that as the final answer, don't forget that he also says, God also says, I have not seen, you have not heard, or entered into the heart of man the things that God as prepared for people. We haven't arrived here yet. These are great mysteries. They are hidden in a mirror dimly. We're looking through a fog. It's a dense fog. We can't see a hood ornament because we still have a hood ornament. (laughs) (laughs) We're driving blind here. And we're very dependent on the love of God. So maybe we want to hold our decisions that million dollar prize until God calls us home and we actually find out. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, let's go on because we've only done three of the four here. He died for us. He rose for us. He's at the right hand of the Father. But now we find out that along with the Holy Spirit, 
whom we learned earlier in the chapter is in us, making intercession for us with groanings too deep for words, we now learn we have another intercessor, and it's the judge himself. The judge himself is at the right hand of the Father, and he is making intercession for us. Well, oftentimes when I read this, I think of, okay, I think, okay, I'm being, you know, maybe I'm being charged with sin or somebody's bringing accusation, you know, and so Christ is there and he's at the right hand of the Father and he's making intercession for me. He's pleading my justification, okay. Well, I, that's, that's clearly a truth of Scripture, okay. First John chapter 2, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, right? So clearly the Scripture teaches us that there is some sense in which Jesus is advocating for us even when we have sinned. Okay? And so He is, in one sense, pleading His blood over us when we sin to the Father. But I don't think that that's what Paul's talking about here. It might be, or, or maybe I should put it this way. It's maybe included in this, but I think it's much broader than this. It's not because in this case, in this passage, the picture we get is not the Father being advocated by the Son, but rather that the Son is the judge in this case, okay? In our little courtroom scene here in Romans 8. That the Son is the judge, and he's making intercession to the Father for us. Well, what is he praying? Well, certainly we do know, as I said from First John, we do know he is advocating for us, pleading the blood over us. We do know he's doing that. But Christ's intercession for us does not stop there. What other things might Christ be praying for you right now? How, where, where could we go to figure out what Christ prays for? Now, with the Holy Spirit, we know not to ask. Because He tells us it's groaning too deep for words, right? Okay, so we just go, okay, He's groaning for us. That's, that's, that's what I need to know about the Holy Spirit's prayer. But if I wanted to know what Jesus is praying for me, where might I go? John 17. And we won't do a study of John 17 here, but I just want to mention to you the things that we know that He is praying for us because we know He already has. Because in John chapter 17, He says, He's praying, and it's very clear, He starts out, He's praying for His disciples. But then, just in case the Father doesn't get the message, Jesus says, now I want to make it clear, I'm not just praying for these, but for all those who believe on Me through their word. So, in other words, you are in the John 17 prayer. So, these are some of the things that we know that Jesus is praying for you. We know, and this is, this is what is thrilling to me, and it particularly pertains to the question that Paul is dealing with in Romans chapter 8, is he's praying that God the Father would keep us. That's right. He starts right off the bat. First thing he says, first thing he prays, when he starts praying for his disciples, he says, Father, I've kept them up till now. Now, I'm leaving. You keep them. And then he's very specific a couple verses later. He says, you keep them from the evil one. 
So one of the things that we know that Jesus prays for his people is that we be kept from the evil one. He also says, keep them from the world. Well, he prays for our joy. And he prays that we would have a joy like he has. Now, put that in your pipe and smoke it for a while, okay? He wants you to experience, he's praying that you would experience the joy that he experiences with the Father. He's praying for your sanctification. That's that whole predestination to the conformity of the image of his Son, right? He's praying that you would be sanctified in truth, that you would be set apart by the truth, that you would become like him. He's praying for your sanctification, for your conformity to his image. Then he says, I pray that they might be one, Father, as we are one. So he's praying that we would all be one. Well, we're doing a great job on that, aren't we? (laughs) Well, it is going to happen, folks. Now, it does happen on a little scale, and we need to be working on this issue because Christ is praying for it. So here in this world, you and I need to work on this issue of being one with other believers. But I can tell you a secret. When all is said and done and the glory of the sons of God is revealed, we will be one as the Father and the Son are one. And the world will look on it then. The world looks on us now and they see all these denominations and all us bickering Christians and all this sort of thing. You know, and you know what it does to their heads. But when it finally does really happen and that prayer of Christ on our behalf is finally ultimately answered, the world is going to look on it and they're going to see the glory of the sons of God and they are going to go, Jesus is who he said he was. That's where it jumps. Kind of, true believers really are one. Oh, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. There are a lot of divisions and denominations, but I think the biggest reason for that is a lot of people aren't true believers. (laughs) That's true. But, but, you know, I'm a true believer and I've had hard feelings towards other believers, so I agree with you, though. I think if we are true believers, there is definitely a unity. Yeah. That's true. To be perfectly honest, we're playing pretty fast and loose. This is one of the biggest commandments in Scripture. It comes up mm-hmm. again and again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ephesians 4, for example. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. You know what? My baptism was physical. People could see me going under the water. <laughs> and so was yours. Mm-hmm. My communion is physical. They can see that. This yeah. church yeah. building is physical. People see us coming and going. And when you go to work on Monday... You're going to have to stand beside a Catholic, an Orthodox, a Presbyterian, another breed of Baptist. And God knows there's more Baptists than you. <laughs> more kinds of Baptists than you. <laughs> I learned that joke from the Baptist. Uh, we're playing pretty fast and loose with this. You know, as a layman, yeah. when you go to work, you've got to work this out. Yeah. And if you need prayer, you're not going to run off to church and wait for prayer. You're going to go to your Roman Catholic buddy in the stall beside you that you know is marked with the blood of Christ because you talk to him yeah. about these things. And yeah. you know how sincere he or she is. Yeah. Uh, but you know what? 30,000 denominations just won't come. <laughs> this is disgraceful. Yeah. Yeah. And our witness, we want to evangelize our world. And I would submit to you 
that the biggest obstacle to our evangelizing our world is the fact that we're so separated and we're so at war over trivia. And you want to know who the worst of the lot is? It's us theologians. <laughs> us yeah. pros. Yeah. We're the worst of the lot. Yeah. Victory. Well, and we do have to make a distinction, though, between discussing passionately our differences and being at war with one another. Those are two different things. So, as Christians, we will differ because we're human and we, you know, we fail and so we have shortcomings. And so I understand that you all don't understand the scripture perfectly like I do. So, (laughs) so we understand that, right? But. But but we need to learn how to discuss these differences and still express the oneness and the unity of Christ. But this is Christ's prayer. He prays for our oneness. And then He prays. And I think He's still praying it. He says, Father, that they may be with Me where I am. And so His prayer is that we might be with Him. Now, the point I want to make before we walk out of here this morning is that Paul wrote these things to people at a particular point in time in Rome, believers, about whom he said these things are true. No one will bring a charge. No one can bring a charge. No one will condemn. He actually, when he, when he uses that word, who will bring a charge, it's actually in the future tense and it actually says, who will be bringing a charge? He's talking about in the future. So he's talking to believers in Rome at a particular point in time and he's saying to these believers in Rome at a particular point in time, who in the future will bring a charge against you? God is the one who is present tense participle justifying you. Now, take a young Christian in Rome. His name is George. Not very Latin sounding, but his name is George. And he's in Rome. And he gets... He he happens to be in church the day... He's in Sunday school class. The day the letter from Paul arrives in Rome. And the Sunday school class teacher reads to them Paul's epistle to the Romans. Takes a long time and he goes well past into the sermon time. Okay? But he reads the entire epistle of Rome. And he reads to George this stuff. And he says, George, this stuff is true about you today. March 21st, A.D. 65. But things don't go well for George in the years ahead. And he goes through a lot of suffering. And ten years later, he's, he knows how acutely he has failed God. And he's just not done a good job of it. Have these things ceased to be true about George? Is it possible, what I'm asking you, is it possible that these things could be true about you today and not be true about you ten years from now? And the answer, logically, 
is, it's an impossibility. It's a logical impossibility that something that is true about you, that is absolutely true about you in your future today, would not be true about you in your future ten years from now. See what I'm saying? What am I talking about here, folks? I'm talking about the security of the believer. Talking about the eternal security of the believer. I'm talking about the fact that we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. And if that was true about the Ephesians when he wrote it to them, to everyone it was true about in the book in Ephesus who received that letter, to everyone it was true about at that moment, it, has, it was at that moment and forever true that they were sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. I believe with all of my heart in the eternal security of the child of God. Absolutely unconditional. But there is a problem. We have people who would destroy this doctrine. Now, we have those who don't believe the doctrine. And so they would argue against it. And I can deal with them. A lot of them are my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I can deal with that. But my problem with the ones who would destroy this doctrine are the ones who do believe it. And so they take it as a blank check. And what they do is they destroy the doctrine. Because they say, I'm secure. I walk the aisle. I pray to prayer. I filled out a form. I confessed Christ. And so now I can live any way I want to live. Those are the people who are the greatest threat to the biblical doctrine that the child of God is secure in God's love. Well, we're way out of time. And so we'll pick this up next week and we'll go on with the next verses.